Fascism is a tyranny which enshrines the values of the lower middle class. Even though the lower middle class doesn't get to rule. It just gets to feel satisfied that the world is well run. It likes symbols of authority and it likes to dress up. It likes patriotic parades. It believes in family values. That is, the woman in the kitchen, the kids in kindergarten, and the dad in the driver's seat. It likes to abolish day-to-day -day history by being excessively neat and tidy. It hates everything alien, strange, and new. It bows to, if it does not worship, authority. It is permanently resentful of its lower middle class position. Hello and welcome, I'm Douglas Bowles and this is 42 Minutes, a podcast about meaning from SyncBook Radio and distributed by thesyncbook.com. You can find our archives at 42minutes.com and you can reach us by sending a message to mail at 42minutes.com. You can also follow our tweets at Sync42 and at SyncBook. It's November 12, 2020, and today we want to bridge the gap by becoming more bitwise. And we'll do so with software engineer, critic, and writer David Auerbach. Auerbach is the author of Bitwise, A Life in Code, published by Pantheon in 2018, which is a memoir of his life in tech and how it has changed society over the last generation. His writing has appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, the MIT Technology Review, the Nation, New Scientist, The Daily Beast, N Plus One, Book Form, and elsewhere. He lives in New York. It truly is an honor to be sharing 42 minutes with Mr. Auerbach this morning. How are you doing, David? I'm good. Thanks for having me. You bet. So I found you by way of your essay in the Tunnel at 25 website symposium. How in the world did you get involved with that? Um, <laughs> that's a good question. So, uh, I, I read the tunnel when it came out back in, uh, 1995. Uh, I was, uh, I was young at the time. I was a teenager and, uh, it, uh, <laughs> it's a very depressing book. <laughs> By the time I finished it, I, uh, I was in the depths of despair, but I remembered it. And so 25 years, um, 25 years later, I believe that uh, the 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 uh, the man who w was was running the site, uh, uh, who, who's uh, Ted Morrissey, who's Ted Morrissey, yes, whose name is uh, Ted, uh, had found me based on uh, some of the other literary um, pieces that I'd written, and I'm not sure exactly which one it was, but uh, I, I think I'd said a couple times that I did consider the tunnel to be, you know, one of the great novels of, of recent years. And so he asked and, uh, I had never, I had never written extensively on the tunnel before and I knew it was going to be an absolute nightmare, but I wanted the challenge to try to sort out the book because it is an extremely vexing book. So, um, so I'm really grateful to Ted to, for giving me the opportunity to do it uh, because I, I got a lot out of it. Um, it's always good to, I think, spend, to be forced to, to spend time with a book and actually, you know, make sense out, try to make sense out of it or make something out of it. And I don't think that I came to grips with it entirely, but I did try to, I, I put together a better roadmap for myself that I hope will uh be of use to some readers as well. Well, so you read it in 1995. How many times do you think you've read it since then? Entirely? 
Only once. <laughs> I've certainly gone through it uh, a number of times, but at every time I thought of going through the entire book from beginning to end, it seemed like it would be such a soul draining experience. <laughs> I only read excerpts. So in some ways I was carrying the memory of that first, uh, of that first reading with me the entire time as I went through it. And it's, it's a very nonlinear book. So it's a lot more open, I think, to, um, to selective rereading. Uh, but, uh, I'm really glad I got the chance to read it from start to finish because all of the shifts in it, the strange conjunctions and, and, and messinesses, uh, don't quite come out, uh, unless you are reading it from beginning to end. Nonetheless, I can't see myself doing it again for a while. <laughs> You know, I'm reminded of of something Arno Schmidt said about his monster book, Bottom's Dream, which is this like 800 page, you know, postmodernist text. And he's 800. No, I think it's longer than that. He said something like, well, people only really need to read chapters three, seven and eight. And, I was, well, <laughs> <laughs> and I think it, it, it's true that the, the tunnel, I think. Like I said, there's you can get more out of selectively reading it than you can get out of, say, reading um, like Joyce or or uh, or, or, or Pynchon selectively. You know, like the same thing with 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 Robert Musil, who I, who I love, which is that you know you can read Musil selectively too, and not and not get too thrown off uh, from, from from the excerpting. In part of your considerations in this essay um, entitled Glass and Dirt, the Tunnel in 12 Antitheses or an Antitheses. 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 Um, yeah. How much did you end up having to spend some time selectively with the tunnel before you wrote it? Or was this just, uh, you know, how, how, did, how much time did you spend... Because some of the things that you you uh, talk about really uh, helped me understand the book in a different way too. Oh well, thank, thanks for that. Um, I spent a long time. Uh, I, I I read the whole thing over, maybe twice twice entirely, and then just sort of tore through particular sections trying to make sense of it. And I also dug up what criticism I could, and uh, there are bit. Uh, there's not a huge amount of literature on it, but uh, but there's definitely some some very helpful articles which I uh, uh, which I referenced in it, and also some interviews with Gas that were pretty revealing. Um, so I did a lot of prep work, and I, I yeah, Ted Ted gave me a fair amount of advance notice, so I had a couple months to do it. So I had time to read it and sit with it and think about it and. Um, and I ended up, I mean, a ton of material was thrown away. And the, the, the tunnel, it's, it's constructed in these 12. The, the reason why I took uh, the number 12 was uh, it, it was originally subtitled uh, the, tunnel, the Tunnel in 12 Philippics. And each of the chapters is meant to um, be at, to have an equal weight with each of the others. It's not that there, I mean, there's some progression but it's not that that's what i say that's what i mean when i say that the book isn't isn't exactly designed to be linear that that you're looking at the same um uh 
the same uh, structure from different vantages. And I think this is a point that, that, that Ted makes in, in his in one of his pieces. Um, and, and so uh, a lot of it was me going back and sort of building my own superstructure around that architecture so that I could make sense of of these of these of these equally weighted pieces. Uh, and that took a while um, going going through it. I I was lost. I was frustrated. I was uh, alienated. And Gas always made it clear that he intended the book to do this. The book was supposed to be very rebarbative, especially at the beginning. And it is. Well, um, can you recommend it to someone? You know, that's the interesting thing. You know, who is this book for? And you you note in your in your essay how it's both. Uh, lyrical and vulgar simultaneously and so when you're trying to quote something you end up you can't highlight one thing without sharing the other yeah yeah i mean the the you know the oscillation of these of these almost baroque passages with the dirt with the dirty and and racist limericks is it's jarring it's very intentionally jarring and i and I mean, as far as recommending it, you know, it's not a book for everyone. Very few books are for everyone. This book may be for fewer people than than most. And, you know, in the age in which we live, um, you know, the, the, the audience for difficult books, I think, has shrunk uh, compared to what it was 50 years ago when there was more of, I guess, a, uh, you know, a cultural... Um, Cat, cat cachet associated with it. So, you know, you're, I'm only going to recommend this book to someone who has an interest in the development of literature and its possibilities and what can still be done with the word. Um, and, you know, there aren't that many people who are interested in that, but that's okay. Um, there's room for that in the world. And, um, in some ways, I think Gas was trying to write a novel that that he didn't want uh, anyone to read, <laughs> uh, because he, I think, was also even even in his era, he was filled, I think, with the increasing futility, or not futility, but the increasing marginality of literature in this sense. And the tunnel was, in in some ways, his his attempt to get to grips with that. Of okay, well, how do you write a book? That isn't just for, you know, the class of of, of uh, aging uh, of, of aging elites who who still are deluded enough to think that the, that that literature exists at the center of the world. <laughs> How do you write a book? Uh, this is his answer. Uh, you make sure you alienate you alienate as many of those elites as possible at the same time. Uh, well, so the book itself is is the you know the protagonist's response to so he just uh, completed his magnum opus um, and he needs to write the introduction, but instead of doing so, uh, he writes what amounts to his memoirs. I wonder you also are a memoirist. Did you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> and it, like from a structural standpoint or even just a content standpoint as you were working on this piece? I, um, I, I, 
it may have been the other way around in that I thought of the tunnel while I was writing my memoir, which was to say like, well, you know, what does it mean to write a memoir? What am I putting down onto the page? And I think the tunnel had a somewhat, uh, you know, a, a distancing effect on me, uh, or a refremdung effect on me in, in making it impossible to, to, to see the writing of a memoir as just, you know, a transparent act of putting oneself down on the page, which I think is still a common conception that no, you know, one is creating a reflection or a shadow of oneself. And in the tunnel, the shadow created is exceptionally nasty. Uh, but we also know that it's not entirely true. There's definitely points where Kohler, where Kohler is lying in the tunnel. Um, um, and there are definitely points in Bitwise where they aren't lies, but I, I elided details simply to tell a better story because um, the goal was not simply to portray my life in all of its boringness, but to bring out aspects of my life that I thought would resonate with a readership. So um, I, I think in some ways... From both angles, I'm I'm made to think that you know the memoir genre is is one that is exceptionally tricky because there's almost a pretense or a deception associated with it that the reader assumes that you are um, credible in a certain way, and you know, the tunnel goes to extremes to undermine <laughs> that. I don't really, I didn't really take address that head on in my book because that wasn't quite my uh, my remit but it was something that I kept in mind and it was something that I think I, I, I tried to hint at that you know that this is a portrait it's not you know you are not hearing from all of my soul at the same time it is it is a portrait of one aspect at a certain time and when i look at it now i look at it as one might look back on a past self or or an incident in one's life well so one of the problems when this book came out uh, not bitwise but the tunnel is that uh, many of the reviewers conflated kohler with uh gas because there were some similarities between the characters or the, <laughs> the personages. And so it was really difficult for them not to read Gas as, say, uh, you know, pessimistic and uh, anti-Semitic and all of those things that, that Kohler is. And so that was an interesting thing that I thought about is this, this, this book, The Tunnel, has such a specific viewpoint that we're seeing the world through Kohler's eyes and and in your in your book, Bitwise, you you speak a lot about labels and how computers need uh, to have ones and zeros to to classify people. And you note that you are are Jewish, and so I wonder what what that what your perspective you brought to that this book with that perspective. Um, well, I, I guess. Uh, one broadly speaking, I would say that you know, how, however anti-Semitic Gas himself may have been, and I don't have reason to believe that he was. Uh, but even if we hypothesize that um, he was certainly a lot less anti-Semitic than many, many other authors that I've read 
and enjoyed over the years. So, so certainly that didn't that didn't concern me as far as the content itself. Um, it's uh, um, well, it's a provocation, and for whatever reason, we live in an age when provocations are nowhere near as welcomed as they used to be. Um, that there was a time when, you know, the breaking of taboos, almost any taboos were celebrated. And it's not that there can't be excess in that, but, um, you know, I am not, I would not, I was not about to let, you know, the surface aspects of, of the tunnel or gases work alienate me from, uh, from what is under, uh, from what is underneath it. And ultimately it's troubling. Uh, there, there's troubling things about it. And I think, um, I think, um, who was it? Some of the reviewers at the, uh, I mean, at the time it came out, yeah, the, many reviewers were offended, not so much at the offensive content per se, but at the juxtaposition, you know, that anti-Semitic slurs weren't necessarily a problem in the book, but analogizing one's sexless marriage to the Holocaust seemed more offensive. <laughs> And I agree. That's a that's a genuine issue. I think that in the context of what gas is doing, I think it's defensible. But if it weren't objectionable, I think gas would have failed. He was trying to be objectionable. So um, there's not a clear answer there. I can say just for myself, you know, I don't. I don't have a problem with the work on those grounds. I think that that um, it's not subject. Uh, I've I've read. Uh, I I think that at the end of the day, it is a moral book. Um, whether it uses immoral means to achieve that morality, is I think almost an unresolvable question. But I think that. Yeah, you can't. I, I don't think the book can be dismissed on those grounds. Well, so one of the things that you explore in your essay that um, some of the, the the really interesting points that you brought to light is this, um, you know, the idea of, of comparing the Midwest and, and you do that with that quote um, by somebody else talking about how. So mid the Midwest, yeah, by by John Sladek, yeah. yeah, and and Germany, and so it's like, uh, oh, but, no, it's by Thomas Dish on John Sladek. I'm sorry, yes, um, that that the planes when the Sioux lived there weren't boring. It's only when these genocidal people came, yeah, with yeah. with their rectilinear squares and and created you know, the flat gray boringness of the Midwest. And so, but then you also pointed out, um, so, so that, that was the interesting comparison where in one of the parlors, there were these, uh, throwaway description of pictures of Native Americans in, in, you know, Native dress and things. And so you're drawing a good comparison, um, between, so like, that's one of the things that you explore in the essay is this idea of the fascism in the heart and how, it arises. And so uh, topically, that was something that I've been very interested in. Well, I know it's, it's interesting that, I mean, that was one of my, that was one of the discoveries I was happiest about that. And it was something that I really not, I, I had not thought about 
on on early, on earlier readings, which is that you know this is a book about history. It's about a historian of Germany, and yet there is this massive um, elision in it. In that, uh, in that, with a, aside from some throwaway references, that all the refer- uh, that that the history of America is more or less ignored or just um, reduced to kitsch in the form of. Uh, his, uh, his his colleagues his colleague Culp's sort of um, uh, embrace of, of the the victim without really knowing anything about it and um, and I, I, what I took from that was that this was in some ways Gas's way of engaging with America as a fundamentally amnesiac society a, a society that is is constantly concerned with with that constantly forgets its history whether it's slavery whether it's vietnam whether it's the iraq war you know it takes it, it, it it's quite impressive for um for us to have rehabilitated george w bush in you know in less than 15 years, simply because what's currently in front of us, Donald Trump happen, happens to be our, the current person we're annoyed with. And I do think that that is something that is almost unique to, 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 to the United States. And I feel that Gas must have tried to address this by ignoring that he couldn't... Um, that, that there wasn't a way to bring up American history in a way that wouldn't result in it being forgotten again. So all he could do was ignore it in the way that it's done in this novel and address it indirectly. The other author that I think is, that has, has really come to grips with this amnesia uh, is Thomas Pynchon and in Mason and Dixon in particular. Uh, but I, I think also it's, it's no, it's not, um, coincidence that gravity's rainbow predominantly takes place in Europe because again it's it's America as 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 an as an as an, as an, as an as a society that's constantly papering over its history uh, either with myths or simply with with a void hmm. what well, so let's shift gears then and move into into your own memoir and how you structured it which is uh, through computers which is um, really fascinating because you and I are, are roughly the same age. And so these different stages of, of the evolution of our relationship to technology, you know, I experienced at the same time that you did. But so, so what is, what is it to be bitwise? And, and why did you use that as your lens? Do you mean the term itself or the, or just the general approach of the book? Both. The the the, the name uh, I think I mentioned that the, the term itself bitwise it's a pun uh, because bitwise is a kind of operators that are done um, rather rather than on numbers itself but instead of on numbers themselves their operations done on the binary bit representations of um, of numbers and data in the computer so um, I couldn't resist the pun uh, and uh, I, I figured it would act as a little signal to software engineers to indicate to them that I knew what I was talking about because <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't have used that word otherwise. But, um, you know, more generally speaking, 
you know, I, I, I hoped that the book would be instructive in the sense that we are now at the point where computation surrounds us, where our, because of the exponential growth of computers, data, storage, processing power, all of those things, uh, we, now, you know, we now generate more data every day than was generated in the entire history of the world up until the year 2000. So, you know, when we say everything is being captured, everything is being reg regimented, there are increasingly these filters and, and, and distorting mirrors being held up that condition what we do every day. Uh, that, that, you know, in some ways existentialism is now uh, a quaint anachronism because uh, it's impossible to 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 sort of take oneself as as an empty or insufficient vessel because you now are always going around with this huge digital paper trail that's declaring what you are uh, that you that you really can't escape from. And I felt that as much as people uh, are using these systems, they don't understand exactly why it is how it is that computers regiment our lives. And what it is that computers can do well, you know, with like adding, and what they can't do well, uh, such as understanding human language, and why that is, and along with that, what gets lost and what gets played up um, as computers become the surrogates and shepherds of uh, our lives in that way. So the book was um, my attempt to portray, you know, in, in individual details, whether it's uh, whether it was my time at Microsoft and Google or whether it's you know, how the attempts to to rewrite um, psychiatric diagnoses uh, in computer friendly terms or whether it's the raising of, you know, my young daughter. It's my attempt to explain how it is, how it is that that can be that that's being inflected by computation in a way that I think that, that people still don't understand. As a, as a curiosity from the, the writing composition standpoint, did you write the, the parenting chapters from journals or was that all from your memory? Um, or are uh, you a, a freshly new parent right now? There were some parts that were taken mostly it, Mostly, it was reflection. Uh, there's there's a bit at the beginning that was actually excerpted from something that I wrote at the time, and the quotes that I make from my daughter, which are my favorite parts of the book, all of those quotes were written down as they happened. Uh, but um, the reflections on it, those were mostly um, the, those were mo those were mostly me thinking back on sort of how things had changed. Yeah. Well, so that's what's kind of fun for me, too, is re-experiencing, you know, just uh, technology is so ubiquitous now, and we just, um, it's it's that papering over again, where we kind of just know the the browser that we're currently using, and we've forgotten everything else. But, like, uh, I remember, you know, in the past where to search, you know, to do search terms, there was this browser that worked well for this kind of thing and this browser that worked well for this, before Google really had ascended to what it is now. I'm, I'm curious, one of the books that when I was a younger person that I really appreciated was a book by Douglas uh, Couplin called um, Microsurfs. 
Did you uh-huh. have, did yeah. you happen to read that? Because it may have been similar to the life that you led working at Microsoft. I did. It's you know the thing about those. It's <laughs> I hate to say it, but because you know when you've been on the inside of that, what you predominantly notice is what all the things that were gotten wrong. So I was I'm I'm the wrong person to ask about that because all I see is well that detail is wrong that detail is wrong that detail is wrong <laughs> and so and so it sort of drives you nuts. Uh, uh, it, it's funny actually. Yeah, I mean I had the same problem with the show Silicon Valley. Oh, like, that would be the other thing, know? which is like yeah. uh, the the like 2.0 incarnation of you know like Redmond, I guess. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I was just like the details are wrong. It's funny because um, the there's the representation that I think of that was probably nailed Silicon Valley best was a single episode of the show Veep where they go to a uh, a very Google like company called I want to say it was Clovis I think uh, but all I, I I look back and it's like whoever did this did their research because this is uncanny and so I, I tip my hat to them because they they. They nailed it. <laughs> well, so the, one of the things that your book made me think about was when I was a child, my parents, I lived in a fairly rural area, and so we were just kind of turned loose into the into the wild, and we were, you know, just kind of, you know, out in the forest and um, in, you know, the town. The, the leash was non-existent. You know, there would be a, like a holler at dinner time to come home, but otherwise, you know, they just kind of turned us loose. And I know as a parent now that, like, I just feel like there was no, there's no way that I would do that. You know, I want to know where my kids are, but at the same time, the kids are existing in, in this digital landscape where I want to monitor what they're doing, but at the same time, I know it's the same kind of, same kind of uh, experience where they're just out in these different digital realms. Um, with very little supervision, have you have you thought of that at all? I have. Um, I mean, yeah. My 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 older daughter is now um, uh, is now nine and a half, so she's right on the cusp of this. And I, it's very strange because you know all of these. She's being. It it's much harder to to avoid or or shield someone. From parts of the world that uh, that you may not want them to get exposed to, um, uh, but it's strange because in some ways my my daughter is I think reacting with a bit of um, a, a, almost willful discipline in ignoring things that she thinks that she is doesn't want to engage with or is not ready for, um, and that you know I think this is. It may be, I think it's unusual and I think it may be particular to her, but in some ways it does cause me to, it does give me a bit of a sigh of relief because I feel that she actually has a pretty strong internal compass and, um, that keeps her from, uh, from, uh, from going down too many rabbit holes. She also, she's not that much of a computer person, surprisingly, uh, <laughs> Which, which may be, which may be a saving grace for her. I don't know, um, but yeah, she uh, she would just as soon work with her hands or build something uh, than, than than get on the computer or the internet. Uh, you know, she like she likes memes and silly things, but only in very uh, 
uh, only in, in moderate doses. So I guess all I can feel, all I can feel like is, well, you know, hopefully she will be better equipped to deal with this nonsense than I am. Hmm. Well, so you mentioned that you wanted this book to be instructional. And so I, I should say that as I was reading it, you were explaining computer systems to me that I didn't understand in my youth. Like I, I could make them like all the different descriptions, how you're explaining how these different, like even MS-DOS worked. It's like, oh, wow, now I yeah. get it. Um, but the the interesting thing that you brought to this, which is uh, unique to you, is this where you have, you know, even your essay about the tunnel, you're, you're thinking about structures and architecture and how things are designed, but then you're also, one of your escapes was into literature and so yeah. um, I just felt like that was such a great, unique view. You know, I'm wondering, um, you know, how, because it, it does seem like you're utilizing both hemispheres of your brain in that kind of superficial way. You know, so, you know, what is it about these, these competing interests that you were so taken with? It's a good question. I mean, what I say... I mean, the best explanation is probably in the book, but I would say that it was that as much as I was drawn to computers, I also felt a keen awareness that there, was, there were the, all these aspects of life that were being left out by them. And these were things that were confusing to me. And yet I felt that they were um, best explored through literature. And... You know, and not just any literature, but you know, difficult literature, one might say that you know, I found something of real importance in James Joyce's Ulysses, not because it was, you know, some pretentious book, but because these these techniques were being used to say something compelling and original about, you know, exist human existence that was far beyond anything a computer could capture. And. You know, in Bitwise, I talk about I think books that that do, do that that bridge that gap a little, and you know, the works of the Uli Po are an example because they use computational methods frequently. And uh, I talk about uh, a story that I only found when researching the book, where Georges Perec, who wrote uh, Life a User's Manual, um, actually wrote to Donald Knuth, who is you know, the, the, the guru of algorithms, a, 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 one of the most famous you know, computer scientists, uh, and actually asked him in the 60s for a, um, for, for a large Greco-Roman square because he couldn't, create, uh, he couldn't create one on his own. He needed a computer to, do, to find one. And in turn, Knuth decided that Life of User's Manual was one of the best novels, was, I think, the best novel of the 20th century. Uh, so I, lo I, yeah, I love finding sort of degrees of overlap like that. And it, it makes me sad now that if anything, uh, things seem more fractured and atomized and it's, and people are less likely to go out of their individual milieus and find, um, uh, and, and find really these alternate advantages onto the world, uh, that, 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 that aren't compatible with the, the ways of life that they inhabit on a day to day basis. Well, so you you mentioned that, and I experienced it myself, where I was part of a, a blogging community that had a lot of humanity to it and a lot of nuance, um, but then it became a lot less interesting when it moved to Facebook, and it just seemed like Facebook was the natural progression because, mm. 
you know, but it it did not capture the same level of humanity and it just yeah. kind of flattened it out and and we lost something in the translation. I, I'm wondering what, you know, what are you, you, you spend a lot of time on Facebook and you never work there. You, you use the analogy that, you know, having come from both Microsoft and Google, you were like this brontosaurus and, and Facebook is kind of the birds flying around and you're just kind of curious and dumbfounded by the, their ability to fly. Um, yeah. What are you thinking about these days? What are you working on these days? Well, I'm working on another book that is in some ways a sequel to Bitwise. It's it's uh, it's called uh, well, the title at the moment because these things haven't have a habit of changing is uh, is Meganets, and it's in some ways it gets back to actually what you were talking about just now is that the, here's here a sample question: Why is it that when you move when you change the context from say blogs to Facebook, why is it that you have the same people? And yet the nature of the discourse changes. And it is my exploration of how it is that humans and these large networks interacting are creating um, a new hybrid sort of entity that conditions our behavior and our ways of engaging with each other while not really being under our control and not even being under the control of the companies that operate these networks. Uh, it's very influenced by uh, by cybernetics, for, I should say. Uh, by my viewpoint was, uh, uh, was was strongly influenced by that sort of way of looking at uh, systems and feedback, and I think it's a good way of looking at exactly what we are doing to ourselves and what we are creating uh, with these large networks that organize humanity. Well, that was 42 Minutes. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. It was great talking with you. You bet. You've been listening to David Auerbach on 42 Minutes, production of Radio and SyncBook.com. For more information about him, visit his website, davidauerbach.ch, to which we'll link, which is funny. <laughs> for more information about the SyncBook, our guests, check out past shows or subscribe to podcasts via iTunes. Please be sure and visit our website at thesyncbook.com. If you like the podcast, check out others. It's currently all the SyncBook radio archives are free. Feel free to use the search engine to explore the connections. All this and more can be found at thesyncbook.com. Thanks so much. And it's turtles all the way down. <laughs>